So, last time I spoke, we looked at the book of Ezra, the first chapter of Ezra, which deals with the return of the people of Israel to the land after their time in Babylon, which was then, uh, and then Persia, which is modern Iran. If you weren't here, I suggest you go back and have a listen, as what I say this morning will make a lot more sense um, in the light of what I said last time. You can find previous sermons on our website, um, and there's a link at the top of the email notices that will take you directly there. Although I think the last one stopped after about 20 minutes due to some junior plug pulling. Um, in looking at this episode... Um, we saw that God is doing something far bigger than we often see at the time. That God is faithful to his word and his promises. And this return to the land was a couple of hundred years after it had been originally prophesied that Cyrus would be God's agent in freeing his people in Isaiah 44. Thirdly, we saw that God is in control of the nations and the course of history. And fourth, we saw that there is always hope. It's a good job I repeated it really, isn't it? So if you don't know where Ezra is in your Bibles, here's where to find it. So, finding Ezra, it's just there, where the red bit's flashing. It comes right near the end of the Old Testament narrative, and it follows on quite neatly from where we left off in the book of Daniel a year or so ago. I'm going to trip over that chair. Um, so, in terms of the narrative of the Old Testament, Ezra comes right down at the back end there, that bit that was just rotating, the return and re- rebuilding the temple. So, we are at the end of the narrative of the Old Testament here. But before we look any more, or any more detail rather, at what happens in the book of Ezra, let's read the third chapter. I'm going to miss out the second chapter, um, which is a list of the families who returned after the exile. This is not because the lists in Scripture are not valuable. They are. But because I want to stick to the narrative of the events. One of these days I will preach on a list of names just for fun, because there is huge richness in those lists of names that we find in Scripture, and there's a great deal we can glean from them. So I'm not going to put the passage on the screen today. Um, a number of people have challenged me that actually putting the words on the screens give people that are disincentive to bring their own Bibles to church with them, whether on a phone or dead tree ones. Um, and detracts from people finding things themselves in their Bible. So um, I'm not going to put the words on the screen. So if you've come without a Bible this morning, don't feel condemned, just sit back and listen. <laughs> but we're going to look at Ezra chapter 3. It says this, When the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, the people assembled together as one in Jerusalem. Then Joshua, son of Josadak, and his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and all his associates, began to build the altar of, God, of the God of Israel, to sacrifice burnt offerings on it, in accordance with what's written in the law of Moses, the man of God. Despite their fear of the peoples around them, they built the altar on its foundation and sacrificed burnt offerings on it to the Lord, both the morning 
and evening sacrifices. Then, in accordance with what's written, they celebrated the festival of tabernacles with the required number of burnt offerings prescribed for each day. After that, they presented... No, we've already done that. After that, they presented the regular burnt offerings, the new moon sacrifices, and the sacrifices for all the appointed sacred festivals of the Lord, as well as those brought as free will offerings to the Lord. On the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, though the foundation of the had not yet been laid. Then they gave money to the masons and carpenters and gave food and drink and olive oil to the people of Sidon and Tyre so that they would bring cedar logs by sea from Lebanon to Joppa as authorized by Cyrus, king of Persia. In the second month of the second year after their arrival at the house of God in Jerusalem, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, Joshua, son of Josadak, and the rest of the people, the priests and the Levites and all who'd returned from the captivity to Jerusalem, began the work. They appointed Levites 20 years, older and, sorry, 20 years old and older to supervise the building of the house of the Lord. Joshua and his sons and brothers and Cadmiel and his sons, descendants of Hodaviah and the sons of Henadad and their sons and brothers, all Levites, joined together in supervising those working on the house of God. When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments and with trumpets and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals, took their places to praise the Lord as prescribed by David, king of Israel. With praise and thanksgiving, they sang to the Lord, He is good. His love towards Israel endures forever. And all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord because the foundation of the house was, of the Lord was laid. But many of the older priests and Levites and family heads who'd seen the former temple wept aloud when they saw the foundation of this temple being laid, while many others shouted for joy. No one could distinguish the sound of the shouts of joy from the sound of weeping because the people made so much noise and the sound was heard far away. Um, Interesting narrative, this one. Um, There was a point this week when I thought I was going to have nothing to say this morning, which would have been a blessing for you. So, let's just pick up a few of the bits, then we'll look at what it says to us. So, first of all, verse 1 refers to the seventh month. This is the month of Tishri, which occurs in September or October in our calendar. It's a very holy month in Jewish thinking. It begins with the Feast of Trumpets. The Day of Atonement is on the tenth day, and they celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles, or booths, from the 15th to the 21st days. I said I wasn't going to go through the list of names, but just to tickle your interest in lists of names, there are a couple of names that I think tell us something and are worth pointing out that feature strongly in this chapter. They are Zerubbabel and Joshua, or Jeshua, if you read um, the NRSV. So, um, first of all, Zerubbabel. We don't have time here to trace it through, but Zerubbabel, which means offspring of Babylon, is descended from King David and would have been the rightful heir heir to the throne of Judah. So he is identified as the son of Shealtiel in Ezra 3.2. Shealtiel is identified as the son of Jehoiakim, 1 Chronicles 3.17. And Jehoiakim was the king who, at the time of the 
sorry, at the king, sorry, he was king at the time when Judah was taken into exile, when Jerusalem was overrun by um, Nebuchadnezzar. That by itself might be a coincidence. But secondly, Joshua, or Jeshua, depending on the translation you use, is identified as the son of Jozadak, or Jehozadak, depending on your translation again, in Ezra 3.2. Jozadak is identified as the son of Sariah, 1 Chronicles 6.14, and Sariah was the high priest at the time when Nebuchadnezzar overran Jerusalem, which you'll see in 2 Kings 25.18-21. to So what, you say? I think there's something rather beautiful going on here, which is that actually these people have lived in exile for 70 years, God has brought them back to the land and has restored precisely the people who would have been the king and probably the high priest to those roles. There's something beautiful about the restoration and redemption that goes on here that I think is quite wonderful. So it does go to show that it's worth looking at the names. Um, I'm not going to talk um, more about that. But So we have the rightful heir to the kingship and the likely heir to the high priest fulfilling the roles that their grandfathers had fulfilled at the time when Jerusalem had fallen some 70 years earlier. So what happens? Well, one tells us that the people have returned to their ancestral town. But in this most holy month, they gather in Jerusalem as one. Joshua and Zerubbabel then go on to set up the altar probably on its original site within the ruined temple precincts. We're told that they do this. They are terrified of the surrounding nations, which is probably because they want to please God. They immediately offer burnt offerings and reinstitute the regular cycle of daily morning and evening offerings, then the regular burnt offerings and the various festival offerings. And in that month, the seventh month back, they kept the Feast of Tabernacles, sorry, the seventh month, also known as Booths or Sukkot, or if you don't know the Hebrew pronunciation, Sukkoth. This festival was instituted after the exodus from Egypt so that they would never forget the time when their ancestors had dwelt in tents in the wilderness after God's great deliverance of them from Egypt, which I think, again, is strangely poignant, that the first festival they celebrate in the land, at this point when they've once again been delivered from captivity and bondage by God, that they should celebrate the festival of remembering God's deliverance as the first festival when they're back in the land. And then at this gathering, they appoint carpenters and workmen to start the work of rebuilding the temple. They take up an offering, They place orders with Tyre and Sidon to bring cedar trees down from Lebanon for the temple. And then the next year, in the second month, which, by the way, is the same month that Solomon began building his temple. There are all sorts of echoes going on here, the earlier temple. They start the work of rebuilding the temple in Jerusalem. And once again, they begin with an act of worship to mark the laying of the foundations, praising God with trumpets and cymbals. We had, we didn't have a cornet and cymbals this morning, um, but the trumpets they had wouldn't have been curled up things anyway. They would have been long, straight things. But uh, praising God with trumpets and cymbals. If you don't like trumpets and cymbals, tough. Um, 
So there's then an interesting comment that the older people who remembered the previous temple wept when they saw the foundations of the new temple laid. The younger people, however, drown out the sound of the older people's uh, weeping with their sound of cheering and rejoicing, which is heard for miles around. Doesn't actually tell us why the older people wept, so it might be worth us thinking about this. They'd all seen the previous temple, which had been extravagantly and beautifully decorated. So they were possibly weeping over that. But at this stage, only the foundations have been laid, so they don't know how beautifully decorated the new temple's going to be. So I think it's more likely that they were weeping over the reduced state of the temple. They remembered a glorious temple, but now see just the foundations remaining. And also the stones on this temple were much smaller than those of Solomon's original temple, so everything would look considerably less impressive. I also, as I read this passage, I was just prompted to pray for Tim Perver, um, because these people have come back to a place where there is total devastation. Everything's been pulled down, and it's a pile of rubble, basically. Tim Perver is living and working in a situation that's not very different from that. Um, So do pray for Tim, those of you who know him. Uh, He will be home briefly this week. So it's also possible, though, that the author's trying to communicate something else to us here. When the tabernacle and Solomon's temple were dedicated, they were filled with the tangible glory of God, which came down like a cloud. Do you remember that? Um, And this temple will never be filled with the glory of God, or at least it isn't recorded anywhere as having been filled with God's glory. Is the writer trying to communicate that although they're back in their land, there's something less about this than there is about what's gone before? I think there's some mileage in that. We won't see God's glory descend again until the day of Pentecost, when the mighty wind of the Spirit blows and God's people have tongues of fire above their heads. So where do we go with all of this? Well, I think there are four things that leap out of this story to me. Strange. Oh, yes. The first is the priority of worship. Worship first. I think it's significant that the first thing God's people do together following their return to the land is to worship They reinstitute worship. They build the altar, probably on the site of the altar from the previous temple. When Abraham first came into the land of Canaan, the first thing he did was build an altar and worship. When these people return, the first thing we hear them recorded as doing is building an altar. They're terrified of the nations around them. They've got fields that need planting. They're probably living on whatever grew the previous year. But they come together and they worship. Really, they need to be fortifying their cities and towns to prevent, prevent them, protect them from the Canaanites all around them. They need to be planting fields. They need to be repairing and re-establishing their homes, but they worship. Worship and corporate worship in particular, matter. 
I don't just mean singing songs. Worship is more than singing songs. When we, oh sorry, that's the next point. When we gather as God's people to worship, we're doing far more than just singing songs. As we gather here to worship week by week, God is doing something among us. We come from a tradition that it comes with a sense of, what's God going to do today? Let's see something amazing. And that's good and it's healthy. But we're also in danger of underestimating that God is doing something just by us gathering week by week and month by month and year by year and decade by decade. God does something among us and in each of us as we worship. Now, of course, the whole of our lives should be worship to God, not just an hour and a half on a Sunday morning, but our corporate worship as the gathered people of God is important. I remember when I first became a Christian and started reading my Bible each day, one verse in particular jumped out to me, and it's been a kind of verse that's... um, has been with me throughout my life. It's Matthew 6.33, which says, But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. And we have here an example of, these, of the Israelites as they've returned to the land doing precisely that, putting God's kingdom first and trusting him for all that other stuff. I've sought to do that from that point onwards, and it continues to be one of the verses that most impact my thinking. The second thing I see in this passage is the place of unity. Have I got a slide there that's got four different translations on it? Oh, I've given you the wrong version of the PowerPoint then. I'm sorry. Um, Okay, we're told in verse 1 that they gathered as one. Some of our translations struggle here um, as the original Hebrew, or Hebrew literally says as one man, um, which gives a problem to some of our translators. So the New International Version, which seeks to be, generally seeks to be very fair with the way it handles gender language, says this, it says that when the seventh month had come and the Israelites had settled in their towns, the people assembled together as one. So it leaves out the man. Um, as I say, the NIV normally tries very hard to render gender language correctly, but here it smooths out the word man. The New Living Translation, which I think is a, is a good one, says, in early autumn, when the people, when Israelites had settled in their towns, all the people in the, uh, assembled in Jerusalem with a unified purpose. It doesn't mention the man at all or people and adds free with a unified purpose. The ESV, which prides itself on doing a very literal translation, the problem with doing a very literal translation of Hebrew is it's complete gibberish. Um, But the ESV has this. It says, When the seventh month came and the children of Israel were in the towns, the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. ESV is unabashed about the use of the word man, and it uses it actually in some places where the word man never even occurs in the original Greek or Hebrew. Um... But here it goes for a very literal translation that possibly misses the meaning slightly. And then the NRSV, the New Revised Standard Version, says this. It says, "When the se- I did have a slide with all these on, so I apologise. When the seventh month came and the Israelites were in the towns, the people gathered together in Jerusalem. So the NRSV, with its concern for the way gendered language is used, dodges the bullet altogether. Which one do you think is right? Okay, 
Well, yeah, you need to be careful there because to a younger person, the word man means a male person. It doesn't mean a man or a woman. To, our, to us older people, it does. But to younger people, it doesn't. I would say, actually, all of these translations get it right. I don't believe any of these are bad translations. They have all translated it in line with their translation philosophies. I'm sorry about this. Translation, Bible translation and translation in general is one of my special interests. Um, but actually, the NIV seeks to translate the overall meaning. Does it do that? Does it? Yes. The New Living Translation aims to be extremely readable and to go for the overall meaning. Does it, does it manage that? The ESV, the English Standard Version, seeks to keep extremely close to the original text. Does it manage that? And the New, New Revised Standard Version seeks to remove the use of unnecessarily gendered language while sticking fairly close to the literal meaning. Does it manage that? I'd say, I'd say it does it by dodging the bullet. But um, So what I'm trying to say here is, and if someone ever tells you that, there's a, that, that, that someone is using a gender-neutral translation, they are wrong. There is no such thing as a gender-neutral translation available in any Christian bookshop you go to. That idea is nonsense. Um, sorry, I get a bit passionate about this. Um, each of these translations is a good translation. Each of these translations has translated consistently with its translation philosophy. And each of them has sought to communicate the meaning in line with its philosophy of translation. So they struggle, our translations struggle over the gender language here. But what's clear from all of these is that, they, that the people gathered with great unity of spirit in Jerusalem. Unity matters in the people of God. And anything that I do that undermines or damages that unity is dangerous for the whole body of Christ. One of the things we have to watch out for and be on our guard against as the elders of the church is anything that threatens our unity. And unity comes when we value relationships and protect our relationships. And for us as a church, relationship is and always has been one of the key emphases. The church is not built up by being an efficiently run organisation. But as Ephesians 4.16 says, from him, Jesus, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. It's the strength of our connection to one another that causes the body of Christ, the church, to grow. So we need to protect our unity. If someone comes to me with some juicy gossip, I need to be prepared to say, I'm sorry, I don't want to hear that rather than listening to it and then going to the elders and saying, do you know what someone's saying? The third, the third thing is this idea of rhythm. They also give great priority to establishing a rhythm of worship. This is something I think more and more about nowadays. If you get involved in discussions about mental well-being or mindfulness one of the things that comes out is the importance of having a rhythm of work and rest and rhythms in the, your life that make time for your family, your relationships, your hobbies, and so on. 
But what people often forget is that God, through the Old Testament, several thousand years ago, gave us rhythms for living our lives. Where modern psychology has only just recently got there, God was there at least two and a half thousand years ago. Scripture has been very clear for centuries. Here they re-establish a rhythm of worship. They reinstitute the regular festival uh, offerings and festivals. Now, now in a New Testament world, we are not tied to, uh, to um, offerings and festivals. But as a church and individuals, we do benefit by thinking about the rhythms that are involved in our individual and our corporate lives. I've discovered rather late in life that if I don't make something part of my routine and my rhythm, it doesn't happen. So I have daily and weekly rhythms of Bible reading and prayer and worship so that I don't neglect my life in God. Each of us probably needs to work out our own rhythm and I wouldn't impose my rhythm on anybody else. But if we don't have a rhythm for reading our Bibles, it won't happen. If we don't have a rhythm for prayer, both individually and with others, it probably won't happen. Now, I'm a very systematic sort of person, so you'll have to forgive me for this, but I read through my Bible systematically through the Old and New Testaments, and I normally read a psalm each day, although I'm not at the moment. And this is a practice I've kept up over many, many years. 40 to be precise, Uh, not just since I've been paid to read my Bible and to pray. Um, And each of us needs to find that rhythm that actually helps us to press into God prayer, in Bible reading, and in nurturing our relationships. I'm not suggesting that how I do it is how everyone else has to do it. But each of us does need to have a rhythm for engaging with Scripture and prayer and so on. Um, I have a weekly rhythm for taking a day's rest each week. Uh, I try to have a rhythm for exercise as well, though I'm not as good at that. Uh, And as a church, we have rhythms as well. We have tried to build some rhythms into our church life. So, for example, we talked about the the prayer night this, this Tuesday night. We gather to pray. We gather to pray on the second Tuesday of every month. That's the rhythm. We take communion on the second Sunday of each month. That's the rhythm. We take an offering, as we did today, on the first Sunday of each month. That's the rhythm. We seek in each year to remember the major events of the Bible story at Easter and at Christmas, for example. We've sought to build that into our rhythm so that we are constantly reminding ourselves of what God has done um, for us. So that's rhythm. The fourth one is generational differences. Couldn't think of a snappy term for that. So finally, there's a generation gap. The generation gap was not something that was invented in the 1960s when grumpy old men and women used to say of my generation that we were useless and feckless and really needed a good dose of national service. I can remember the response when I told them that my generation was going to be more concerned with preventing wars than preparing for them. Um, That got me into considerable trouble as the other thing you couldn't get away with in those days was answering back to people older than you. But we see in this passage that there was a generation gap in Israel two and a half thousand years ago. It's nothing new, folks. Um, 
the older generation reacted very differently from the younger. Um, the older folk were probably thinking back to the glory days, the good old days, which is a phrase I remember from my childhood as well. They often forgot that the good old days involved sitting in bomb shelters while the city around you was blitzed to smithereens. Anyway, they were probably looking through rose-tinted spectacles as the old temple had been progressively stripped of its decoration over time as the nation declined. So actually, their rose-tinted memory of the temple was distorted anyway, because by the time they got to the end, most of what was beautiful and glorious in the temple had been stripped out to pay for wars, actually. The younger generation saw that their generation was now doing something their parents had failed to do by building a temple for God in Jerusalem and couldn't understand why their parents had failed to do it for the last 70 years, probably. Different generations have very different experiences and therefore very different perspectives. And when we're younger, we find it hard to see the wisdom Of the way, of the way things are done, and we just want to change it. And when we're older, we tend to look back through rose-tinted spectacles at the way things were, or used to be. We need intergenerational respect and understanding now in a way we never have before, uh, in the church and in society around us. In the church, Everything from gender issues to music styles can cause intergenerational tensions. And I would suggest that we need intergenerational respect and understanding to deal with them, not dismissal and frustration at other generations. So from this passage, I think we can learn something. I think there's a great deal here we can learn. Firstly... About, sorry, learn about what it means to be the people of God. Firstly, the primacy of worship. Second, the importance of unity and seeking to maintain that unity, as Ephesians puts it, maintaining the unity of spirit in the bond of truth. Is that Ephesians? Pretty sure it is. Um, anyway, it's in the Bible. Um, so, secondly, the importance of unity. Um, Thirdly, our rhythms of life together and individually, making sure we build rhythms that are healthy and holy and which draw us into God and that we hold to those rhythms. And fourthly, the place of intergenerational love and respect. Those of us who are older, not just insisting on Wesley hymns. I'm only going to have Wesley hymns at my funeral, but um, so if you like Wesley hymns, come to my funeral. But actually... Whilst I love those songs that declare biblical truth and touch my spirit and make me want to do, just make me want to rise up, we also have to understand that's not what another generation likes. And the other thing we forget, by the way, is John uh, Charles Wesley wrote about five thousand hymns, of which we still think sing about ten. So those of you who are discouraged about modern songs, very few of what we sing now will be sung in ten years' time, let alone fifty years' time. But we have to respect the fact that actually some people would rather sing about their relationship with God. For me, when I hear stirring truth, it really touches me right down here. And I can see Rachel nodding. I think a lot of us are probably the same. 
Um, and I personally dislike a lot of more modern songs. But actually, I need to be prepared to go with that. Because what God is doing with this generation is not what God was doing with my generation. That was the other way around. With my generation. And these people in Jerusalem had to expect, uh, not expect, respect the fact that what God was doing in that generation was different from what he'd done in a previous one. This was a new temple going up that was glorious and fantastic and it wasn't like the one that went up before. And the older people had to respect that and the younger people had to respect the price that had been paid to get them to that point. So there needs to be respect between generations. I've overrun by three minutes and 24 seconds. <laughs> so let's just pray. Uh, and hand back to Caroline. Father, we want to thank you for your word. We want to thank you that you have been at work throughout history among your people. And actually, the dealings that you had with these people two and a half thousand years ago nearly were not much different than the dealings you have with us now. Lord, will you help us to be men and women who seek to extend your kingdom in our world, in our town, and in our environment, and our homes, now. Will you help us to be those who, who grasp something of the primacy of worship? Will you help us to, be, to grasp the importance of maintaining unity in your body? Will you help us to to be those who establish rhythms that draw people to you, that lead us to you, that enable us to minister and to function in the long term, not treating life as a marathon, but as a sprint. And will you help us, whether we're young or old or somewhere in the middle, to respect other generations, to honour what you're doing in other generations, and to recognise that the experience of a younger or an older generation is very different from our own experience. And what you're doing in that generation might well be different from what you're doing in my own. But will you help us to be your people, we pray? Will you help us to dwell in the land, in your church, with honour, respect, unity, worship, and godly rhythms, we pray. Amen.